Welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Reverend Skylar Vogel, the senior minister at our congregation, and thank you for watching. What follows this introduction is a video from our service on March 7th, 2021. It was called The Last Normal Sunday and explores the year it has been since we were in person together. In this video, you will hear uh, the reading, the reflection uh, that I gave, and also you will hear a conversation between myself and Colin Wolf, our Assistant Director of Religious Education, for an in-depth conversation that goes deeper into uh, the themes of the service, how this year has been, what we've learned, what it's been like. Um, you're invited to check out this video and our audio podcast each and every week. Um, it's posted on our website, on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and any of your favorite podcast streaming sites. Now, if you like what you see, we hope you will give us a positive review to like, comment, share, subscribe, to help spread Fourth Universalist media further. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. by Unitarian Universalist Minister Lynn Susan V. Elrich, who serves as the Unitarian Society, serves the Unitarian Society of New Haven, Connecticut. It is entitled March 2020. The cloudless watery, watery blue sky has yet to learn of the small virus wreaking havoc on the earth below. The red buds emerge from winter trees have no idea they're awakening to a world where people can't hold the hand of their dying. The wind blows chilly air through whether or not cheeks and fingers remain protected within walls. Stars continue to burn their great stores of energy. Do they also fear the day they'll run out? But birds know everything about singing to each other across empty spaces. Dogs understand greeting that doesn't involve touch. Tortoises take things slowly and carry their sense of home everywhere. Cats flatten their curves all the time. What will history write about this moment? What will our children remember? May it be a story of mutual care across all boundaries, a habitat of compassion, as hopeful as spring's return and as encompassing as the vaulted sky. It's hard to believe that one year ago this Sunday, our congregation met in person for the last time. It's hard to believe that a whole year has passed, but it also feels like so long ago. I remember that Sunday only a little because at the time it didn't seem especially remarkable. I remember that most people were aware enough 
to not go in with a classroom welcome and good morning handshake or hug. I remember that during the greeting part of the service, when people say hello to their neighbor and turn around and greet each other, we asked people to greet by touching elbows like this. And we demonstrated it lightheartedly at the front of the sanctuary. It was fun and different and we got laughs. On that last Sunday, no one was wearing masks and food and coffee was served and shared. After the service, there was a concern that the prospective member meeting would conflict with a postcarding event to combat voter suppression. I preached about religious education and what that meant in Unitarian Universalist spaces. Looking back, it felt like a simpler time. It was business as usual. We were innocent and unaware. None of us knew it would be the last time in more than a year until we were all back together in person. For some of us, it may have been the last time we ever saw each other. Close to a dozen members have moved out of New York City since last March. And even harder, four beloved members of our congregation have died since then, never to rejoin us again in person. None of us then knew to say goodbye. The week that followed was the week that changed everything. Here in New York, soon to be the global epicenter, I got my first tip off when I heard how hospitals were filling up. It hadn't hit the news yet, but it was coming, the doctors said. The next day on Monday, I took the train to Midtown and I met with a team of immigration activists from sanctuary neighborhoods to plan our next moves. After that, my wife and I had tickets to see Late Night with Seth Meyers. We crowded into a tight NBC hallways and studios. It was a classic New York City experience, the kind that makes living in the city so great. Sometime that day or the next, I heard from a doctor in the congregation that things were getting really bad. So bad that he would bet a lot of money that the church would be closed by Sunday. Now, I remember hearing that and not really hearing that at the same time. The idea of canceling church wasn't something that you talked about. It didn't happen, maybe for a blizzard or a hurricane, but a virus? The idea of moving online to Zoom was an absurdity, an impossibility, a decision so severe to be reserved only for doomsday scenarios. Tuesday night of that week, we were planning to host a dinner in our home to celebrate the ending of a six-week theology program. I remember vividly following the news that afternoon and having a sinking feeling in my stomach. I remember thinking just how the news shifted in a matter of hours that afternoon, that if this was on the news the day before, I would probably cancel that dinner but I didn't want to seem alarmist. No other congregations were canceling anything. Surely it couldn't have been that big a deal. It couldn't be that doomsday situation. And it was probably too late to get the word out anyways. We had the gathering, 20 people crammed into our apartment. And to my knowledge, no one got sick, thankfully. Wednesday night, the next night, 
our board met for the first of our regular meetings. I had received words that All Souls, the UU congregation on the east side, was considering canceling in-person services, although it wasn't public yet. While it may seem obvious now that that was the right thing to do, it was very hard in the moment. What was reasonable, we had to ask ourselves, and what was an overreaction? How did you balance safety with the practicalities of running a congregation? If we took the drastic step of canceling in-person worship, would the congregation think we had gone mad? That we were forcing them apart, depriving members of their freedom to gather? Or what if we were the only congregation to move online and no one else did? How out of touch would we look? And if we stayed open and things got really bad, then we looked like we don't care about people's health or didn't trust science. When the board moved to vote and move online, it felt like a weighty decision. The kind generals must feel like after deciding to go ahead with a consequential battle, knowing that there is no going back. We didn't know what would come of it. We didn't know how we would do it. We didn't know what you all would think. What was a Zoom service anyway? How could we possibly hold our community together? Would anyone even show up? I am comforted in looking back a year ago that we made the right decision. I suspect we are among the first congregations in the city to take that plunge to cancel in-person services. Our board and our leadership should be commended for the risk they took to protect the health of the congregation, even when that decision was unprecedented and potentially controversial. We were validated the next day when the NBA suspended their season and Broadway closed. On Friday, the Metropolitan Museum of Art shut down. And by Sunday, the city had gone quiet. The next week, public schools closed. As we gathered on Zoom for our very first online service, the idea of meeting in person, I remember thinking, would have felt incredibly reckless. It was amazing what a difference a week made. And we were validated because you showed up. You kept showing up even to a year later. We have more people engaged in this congregation than ever before, far more programming. We continue to grow. This has been a catalyst. No matter who we are or what our lives looked like, I imagine that that week and this past year played out in similar ways whether with work or friends or family or with us at Fourth Universalist, you have experienced this same shift. That week from normality to concern to, wow, this is actually happening. This is real. You went from business as usual to seeing everything change. And looking back, I am still amazed by how the world was and just like that, how it was not. Challenged were my assumptions about what was possible and impossible. Pillars of society unquestionably stable and enduring screeched to a halt, were shuddered and went lifeless. Gone was the energy of Times Square, the din of crowded restaurants, the routine pedestrian shopping of 
shops and malls. The news instead was full of terrifying stories of disease and overflowing hospitals. The city here emptied out. People submerged themselves in quarantine and others braved their essential work, keeping our world running. Many religious traditions separate time into sacred and ordinary time. And I would never call the pandemic sacred time. But this year has certainly not been ordinary time. It has been a time apart, a time like no other, a time when perhaps for the first time in many, many years, our world has been unified by a shared experience that affects every single person. There was hope at the beginning that our society would be also unified in our effort to fight the pandemic. And that obviously did not happen. But no matter who we are or what we believe, all our lives have changed. We see it in the everyday, the endless Zoom meetings, the social isolation, the mask wearing, the loss of income and livelihood and loved ones. And we see it in the change in our society and our hearts, facing difficult truths that have been uncovered, asking us to reevaluate assumptions once held without thought, Assumptions like who is really essential and what does it mean to treat them like they are? Assumptions about our obligations to keep each other safe, about the danger of our individualistic culture that worships the freedom to do whatever we want, even if it hurts other people. Assumptions about whether our government exists to protect citizens or businesses. We have been asked together to explore grief and loss and fear, but also to reflect on our relationships to what home means, to reflect on what is important to us now that we are kept from our family and friends. Whose relationships do we most miss? How do we prioritize the people we love? We've been asked to think about what work is, what it can mean for our lives. How do we get better balance what makes sense for us to live wholly and well and sustainably? None of us know what the future holds, but I do know that even after one whole year of this, there is room for hope. The vaccine is here and coming. I hope that you will trust science and get vaccinated, not just for yourself, but for all of us. It is a beautiful week thing to see people get vaccinated, even to get in the chat each and every week, news of people not just getting a shot, but becoming safe, a sign of people surviving. A year in, we are close to the end. So let us not forget the lessons of this time, the truths it has uncovered for ourselves as human beings, in a world we cannot control, and also for our society as it learns lessons about what world we wish we had, how we feel right now, of how we have been changed in the days between that Sunday all those years ago and now. Ask yourself on this anniversary what you want to remember when all this is over the lessons, the wisdom, the feelings. Ask yourself how you have been changed 
and that there are parts of you that you have discovered that you want to keep alive. There will be a time when we are back together, maybe this summer, maybe this fall. And when that happens, it will be a good day. None of us are the same as before. Our congregation isn't. Our world is not. But we have gone through it together. We have found wisdom and resiliency and compassion. And we have never given up hope. We have cared for each other under enormous pressure. And that is what we have needed to do. May you find the meaning in this anniversary. May we emerge from it more deeply committed to one another and to the spirit of love and justice that we here share. May we have a better, wiser, and more loving year ahead. Amen and blessed be. Good morning, Skylar. Thank you for your wonderful and affirming reflection as we celebrate a year since our last in-person service and for joining me for this discussion following it. Thanks, Colin. It's great to be here with you and uh, thank you for uh, leading our conversation. My pleasure. So yes, it has been a whole year since our last in-person service. I still feel weird that my Sunday routine doesn't involve a walk through Central Park from the 57th Street R stop. Um, and like you, I have some really vivid memories from that from that day, that last in-person service. And, and you described that kind of anxious awareness that something bad was being braced for, but we weren't really entirely sure just how bad it would be. Um, and following up on that, though, some of my clearer memories are actually from the week following that, our first ever online service. And you charted for us really uh, comprehensively and effectively that saga leading up to that decision and it made me naturally want to ask about the sequel. Do you have memories that are just as clear or was it all just a blur about that first online one we did and uh, thoughts about where we've come since then in streamlining that process? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great question. So yeah, next week will be our anniversary of our first in online service. Um, we're not gonna be talking about that next week, um, but I think it is, it was a, it was a powerful Sunday um, it was definitely an anxious Sunday. I don't think any of us knew what to expect. Um, you know, Zoom, Zoom services are unpredictable. The technology was was new for many of us. I had done a an online service only once before, and it was when we were in fourth quarantine during the Boston Marathon bombings, and the whole city of Boston and, and the area around it uh, basically shut down. And so we had in seminary we had our Friday services at noon, and we did try to do that online, and. Um, it, something it was really nice to see people but it was also kind of a train wreck um we learned you can't sing for example uh over over zoom it just it doesn't work well um so there was a lot of there was a lot of moving pieces very quickly i mean from that board meeting on that wednesday where we decided to go online um it basically meant that we had you know thursday friday and saturday to um not only just tell everyone right uh in the congregation but also the staff, right? And everyone had to scramble to not just know what they were doing, but um, to learn all the technology as well, know how to do it um, and, and piece together, like what does an online version of our service look like? How do we do that smoothly without, um, without jeopardizing the integrity of the service? We didn't know if people would like it. We didn't know if it would be some sort of sad, pale imitation of our, our normal in-person service. 
um, I mean, I remember putting together the script. We have this huge document um, that has like a whole ton of introductions about like all the things that you need to do in order to get ready for the service. And a lot of it's just sort of integrated now into our mindset. You got to have a nice background, right? You got to make sure your internet connection is good. Um, you got to make sure you, you know, all most of our staff um, have sort of cameras uh, and microphones that we had to buy that we didn't have then. Um, and even like Zoom, right? Like Zoom had different settings that we just didn't know about. And so we had to dive into all those settings to, you know, one small slip up means that something really bad could happen really quickly. Um, what happens if someone loses internet connection, right? In the middle of the sermon. Um, so we had to, we had to create structures really quickly. Um, but I definitely have vivid memories of yeah, sitting in my second bedroom here, hoping for the best and being like, all right, here we are. I hope people come. I hope people like it. I hope that, you know, people aren't like, well, I'm never coming to church until this is all over. And we just, you know, like, well, I, is there a reason to have services on zoom? I didn't know if people would think that. So, so I've been pleasantly surprised that a lot of those fears have receded that people still find something meaningful. Um, and of course we're always trying to evolve and change with our services, but it was vivid. I mean, those, and then also, of course, the lockdown that went with it is very different than now, right? We're, we're more free to move around than we were then. Um, um, so yeah, I don't know. What was it like for you, Colin? Yeah. Uh, well, I was, uh, I was actually doing live-in dog sitting at a friend's house at the time when this decision was made. So I was already not really in my space, uh, as I kind of tried to crop my background around me for that, for that first adventure. Um, but uh, sort of paralleling this whole transition to online for church services has been the, the theater industry, which I also work in. It's very similar um, as that mentality of, oh, we, we have to make sure that nothing goes awry, that everything is perfectly in place, and you, and you do your best, and it behooves us to treat it that way, to treat it like we want it to be really professional and clean. But I've noticed um, both in these services and in the, the theater world, there's been a, a, just a growing kind of acceptance that you reach a point where there may be an interruption that is just out of your control. And uh, there's a kind of calm that has descended on that process a little bit more that actually makes handling those interruptions more effective, I've found. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of uh, in, in, a, in a funny way in, in making some of these engagements less formal, they've also uh, had a chance to be more effortlessly polished <laughs> in a way. Um, and as we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel here, we have started talking uh, amongst ourselves with staff and also with congregants about things that we maybe want to retain in terms of access, uh, in terms of being able to bring people in digitally and create that, that you mentioned the programming catalyst, this has started. Um, but I also wonder, uh, is, is the safe return to in-person just going to be this, this in instinctive rush, this, you know, outpouring of gratitude and, and relief that we can all be back together that we'll all just fall back into our regular patterns of interacting in person? Or do you think there are going to be some habits too that we need to really consciously uh, unlearn even for those of us who want to go back in person and aren't, aren't sort of keen or as keen as, uh, as some people might be on actually uh, transitioning to virtual? Some people have preferred that. I think that's a great point. I think there will have to be some unlearning that is done. I think one of the gifts of the pandemic uh, in terms of organizational health and, and dynamicism is that for Zoom and online ministry we took a definitive backseat, right? Like you, you had a Zoom meeting only when you couldn't have an in-person meeting. 
Um, and that was uh, that played a clear second fiddle. My hope is that that has changed. Um, an example of it is that I, you know, so last week we had a fourth universalist history class. Um, we had more than 40 people show up to this uh, on, on Zoom, which was way more than I ever thought we would. Um, you know, congregational history is, is not one of those topics that, that you're like, oh, I'm going to offer this and everyone's going to love and rush in to hear about like, you know, what was going on in 1838 uh, in a, a, particularly in a congregation, frankly, that, that in its DNA has not, not held its history very dearly to it. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have a whole lot of remembrances of our, of our history. We don't, uh, we don't celebrate um, former ministers particularly well or, or at all, as far as I'm, I'm aware of. Um, uh, and so, and so my, my, you know, we had these 40 some people who were at this class, which not only says that like the people are hungry for programming, but it also says that it also tells me that if, if part of my paradigm is that, oh, we'd never have that many people sign up for history class. The reason is probably because it's an hour long and it's online. And, and so if we were to offer that same class a year ago in person, we would not get anywhere close to 40 people there. I would, I would guess because just for the travel time, right? It's at least a two hour commitment for travel, if not more back and forth uh, from wherever you're going. Um, but online, you can just hop on. So, so like other programs and ministries that will work for people online in a way that uh, I, I hope we'll keep on doing. Absolutely. Um, I also think on a very practical staff level, it's a lot less effort uh, for staff and for leaders, uh, even lay leaders to offer programs if they're at home versus having to commute all the way into the church building itself. Um, you know, we have members and staff who live in, um, you know, north of the city itself in New Jersey, Queens and Brooklyn. That's a big amount of time and a lot of stress, right? And so if you can save that time and channel to something else, that's going to be better for everybody. So, so I'm really hopeful that, that that will be part of our culture change. Zoom is no longer, no longer some like bad, uh, equivalent that you only you settle for, but actually could be part of our dynamic work. And I think Colin, you and, and Ember have done a great job of normalizing a lot of online ministry work, whether it's through the podcasts, uh, you know, all the Zoom conversations you have, the videos you make with the Legos, right? Like those are all cool things that there's no reason why that should stop, right? And especially now that we have members across the country in the world, like that allows us, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to keep on doing stuff to keep those folks engaged. Not because we care about how, just the numbers of it, but because they're part of our community in an equal way than people who are a block away from the church living there in their apartment, right? So, so part of it's a reframing of who do we serve? We are the fourth universalist society in the city of New York, but in some ways that's an outdated name now. And we should start reflecting on if that's an outdated name, then how do, where does that locality limit us in our thinking? And I think part of that is breaking open these assumptions about what real ministry is. Um, and the real ministry cannot just be being physically in the same room as other people. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think that uh, the, the possibility of, of uh, you mentioned in your, in your reflection, ordinary and sacred time and how these two divisions aren't necessarily ones into which we can neatly uh, separate this experience, but, but something about um, playing with the way our kind of linear experience has become cyclical, playing with the ways in which our um, spatial experience has become more spread out 
um, can definitely give us some opportunities uh, for, for exploiting that. And one of them is that asynchronous learning that uh, come and learn at your leisure and uh, reach out to each other at your leisure uh, as, as time and motivation hits you. Yeah. Um, you, you also mentioned something interesting in your reflection about how our assumptions about essentiality are being challenged. I mean, just the use of that language, for instance, poses a certain question to us. And we talk about uh, keeping essential workers protected and able to do what they need to do. And uh, you know, always, again, the, the theater world parallels are always very <laughs> acute to me in, in working both here and in that industry. And, you know, yeah, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have ever framed it as uh, art being inessential before. That's not the word I would have used, but certainly the more kind of subjective essentialities and needs that arts and faith communities serve um, are sort of predicated on a more pressing essentiality that is being alive and healthy to enjoy them and engage in them fully. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. And I wondered uh, if you wanted to elaborate on how your challenges of the essential, how your assumptions of the essential have been challenged, um, if that is revealed to you, um, what is the nature of the essential service that arts and faith communities provide during this time? It's a really interesting question. Um, you know, faith leaders and art artists and theater folks are not, you know, they're not listed as essential workers, of course, as we both know. Um, uh, you know, we're not high up on the priority list for the vaccines. Um, and that's all well and good. You know, we we should not deprive those people who have done, who are keeping the city running. Uh, you know, there's lots of issues of, of class and uh, sort of historic oppression as to why I think subverting what is essential uh, versus what is inessential um, is important. And I would and I would of course echo what you're saying too is that I think it's also important that like we don't limit, we don't make a binary out of essential versus inessential, right? Like, you know, if, if, if all the ministers and actors in the world vanished, the society would be better off perhaps than if all of the, the farmers vanished, right? Um, or if the, the people who, you know, take care of the trash, right? Like in some ways, like those people are really essential in other ways. Um, but I would also don't want to limit the, the importance of, of, of art and spirituality um it's one thing to say you know the there are things that keep us alive and there are those things that keep life worth living right um and in art and religion are some of those things right like we if we're if we're merely base creatures we do need a lot all of those things and that's super important obviously and there are people in this world who still don't have those things which is um tragic and something we should be very upset about um, but the work that we do here at Fourth Universalist and that actors and artists do um, sometimes can be very real. I mean, I think there, I think there is a powerful social change movement that comes out of churches, of course, right, and also art, right. There's we are helping push the conversations to help eliminate uh, some of those drastic inequalities of need in the society. But I think we are also on the work of of recognizing that that we live in a world that there will always be need. There will always be not enoughness. Um, there will always be people who are essential who aren't treated that way. But part of what we can do is make make that inherent suffering in this world a little more bearable for folks um, by giving them beauty, by giving them meaning, by giving them a sense of togetherness uh, that both art and religion can offer. 
And so, and so although we're not essential in keeping the lights on and the trash collected and the food delivered, um, I think over time without the arts and without religion, there will be a, a huge, there'd be a huge lack uh, that would happen. And I think part of our role has been, I'm sure with the arts as well, is how to, how to encourage people and support them as they, as they find a way to ground themselves in, in hope and purpose and meaning, whatever, without the tools they've never necessarily had before, right? So if I can't go to a show, if I can't go to a museum, if I can't go to my worship service, how do we how do we gain those things and make them actually more sustainable for us? And I think I think part, that's part of what essentiality means during the pandemic is what are the things that are really essential for my wholeness and well-being emotionally and spiritually? And I think that is something I've been clarifying for me and I think for others too that like that we can actually take a greater ownership of our art, love of our spirituality. Um, that we don't have to rely necessarily on other people that we are asked to in that period of scarcity to be creative ourselves in, in pursuing those things. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's wonderful and, and very much true. Um, and of course, uh, churches and theaters alike, though, have had to grapple with the material basis of their craft, right? And that means engaging with conversations about safety, uh, as you mentioned, the, the, the very much uh, vindicated decision on uh, your part and the board's part to put services online when it seemed like the warning signs are pointing that way. And, uh, and of course, the arts communities, a, a lot of the talk uh, across artistic directors and unions has been um, making it clear where the community as a whole stands in terms of um, what kinds of hazards are worth the service being rendered in a particular way. And uh, one of the kind of difficulties that uh, our country has grappled with is that the response of religious institutions to safety protocols and to uh, mask recommendations and the conclusions of science has been uh, very uneven, uh, to put it politely. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, sometimes with, uh, you know, Supreme Court encouragement, uh, sometimes with gubernatorial encouragement. And, uh, so how do we how do we thread that needle when uh, religious liberty is invoked uh, as a as a way to uh, to reject uh, material concerns about about keeping your yourselves and your neighbors safe and what does uh, other than trying to set a good example uh, which I think that we very much have done what is the, the role of a religious community like ours in a world where uh, where that the idea of religion can be kind of, you know, literally weaponized uh, against against one's neighbor in a time like this. Yeah, um, it is definitely true. The religious response to the virus has been mixed. Uh, in some ways, it has its roots back to the 1930s New Deal reaction uh, um, to where the religious right at the time was co-opted by business interests. Um, there was a feeling from corporations in the United States that uh, FDR's New Deal would fringe upon their freedom to be capitalists and to uh, cut down on their profits. And so they they made a somewhat brilliant connection with evangelical Christianity that corporate freedom uh, connects to your own personal uh, your freedom to worship Christ directly, no interference, right? And so this, this idea of freedom 
being tied not just to your own worship, right, of doing whatever you want, uh, your own personal relationship with Jesus, that no one can interfere with that, um, to the idea that corporations and business should be able to do whatever they want. That's a real that's a real alliance that is formed, and it was formed intentionally, and it was formed with a lot of money going to, uh, at the time, radio stations to support uh, the religious right. And so the lesson for today is that many of these traditions and these particularly evangelical communities that have been against mask mandate, mandates have long, long ago uh, had their integrity jeopardized by that relationship, um, by this, this sort of unholy pairing of profit and, and religion that goes back all the way. Then we see it continue, of course, with, um, you know, various forms during the 1960s, the Southern strategy, right? The dog whistling uh, that happened during the Reagan administration and, and before, um, you know, and, and to the mega Trump world today, right? Of, of the easily manipulated and, and deification of, of certain people and concepts. So I think, I think that's a sad reality that we're facing here too, this sort of, this, this deification of individualism uh, and what freedom means in this country. Uh, the uncriticality of science certainly is a part of that as well, where no one can tell me what I think is, is true or right. Uh, you know, that is not how certainly I see it, and a lot of you, you see it. Um, and so I think we get in a world where you have these different interests battling it out. And unfortunately, the, the fall line is reality itself, right? It's, it's do we believe that the science is true and, and science is, is all that science is, is, is our best effort to examine the evidence of the world in front of us and make conclusions from it. Um, it's nothing fancy. It's just being like, you know, does this mug, if I drop it fall, well, if it falls every time I do it, then chances are there's something pulling it down. I shouldn't do that anymore. Right? Like science is just that except much more complicated because we don't all understand it. So I think, I think religion, should take a lot of blame for this. You know, religion is not inherently a good thing. Religion is corruptible, just like people are, and we are we are seeing that. Um, but we've also seen a lot of religions come out and be very clear what is right. You know, that science is worth listening to, and and our tradition has um, has a history of always not always, but largely being sympathetic to science and and being interested in the in the the mission of tying our religious values, right, and our principles as moral human beings to, to the reality of the world as we learn it to be, um, and not pushing back against that, but by conforming ourselves and our understanding of the world based on our, in conversation with our values. And that's, that's a very special thing and often something that's undervalued in our society to be able to tie those two things together because we're not seeing that, right? Some people just deny the reality of the world and say, I don't like it, so I'm not going to think about it which is not how you get a safe country that respects masks, that takes the vaccine, that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you. And uh, on, on behalf of the community, thank you for your leadership and for setting that example as uh, someone who is supporting the thriving of a, of a spiritual organization and collective, but also acknowledging that this really doesn't have to be, in fact, can't be mutually exclusive with the... <laughs> the shared material plane that we all inhabit together. So thank you for your reflection and for carrying us through a, a year since we transitioned to this way of holding services and convening. And thank you for taking the time to discuss this with me. 
Thank you, Colin, for, for leading this conversation and for all your great questions. And thank you all for watching and listening. And uh, we hope you'll join us uh, next week for our another conversation.